Hello and welcome to the Welsh Music Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Neil. How's it going, mate? Very good, thanks. Uh, despite all the crap weather we've been having recently, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's some areas of Wales have been really like flooded and uh, we've uh, fared a bit better, but um, it's been great to see the music community once again really rallying around each other. Yeah, you know, it's not the first time it's happened and it's so good to see people, particularly in the music community, using their contacts and their and their skill base to raise awareness of things and the adversity that these people are facing, that people are using their voice to support those um, affected in the Valley communities, particularly um, the much loved venue Club Ibont in, in Pontypri Town Centre, which, uh, you know, massive damage to that during the weekend. Um, so a couple of gigs uh, at the Pop Factory in Porth over the weekend of the 13th and 14th of March. Full lineup and ticket details are going to be announced on March 1st, but we've already had one name scheduled to play on the Saturday, which is uh, Grammy winner Amy Wodge, which is a great gesture. Yeah, fantastic news that she's involved. And um, a brilliant uh, gesture once again from the Greenman Festival, pledging £10,000 to those affected. Yeah, and you know, our guest today, Rhys Moyne, he's used his position and, and status to as a force for good in the past, as he mentions a couple of times in, in the podcast today. Yeah, a really fascinating character. And, um, you know, over the course of, well, since we started really back in October, um, with the amount of research for different bands, it's amazing how many different bands he crops up somewhere in their backstory yeah. from... Know, the early days of Catatonia and uh, Cry. Yeah, m- much respected figure in, in Welsh music and, and one of the first names we had on the list when we started the podcast. Thank you ever so much for listening. The, the response as ever has been fantastic. Our last episode with uh, Ellis James talking about that bluggy's masterpiece pissed is, is now the most listened to episode that we've had. So thank you ever so much. Keep sharing with your friends. Uh, review, rate, subscribe, all of those things. And uh, any guests you want us to talk to, please uh, send over your recommendations on, on social media or, or an email. Diachum Rando. Suris, Croeso, Adioch. Thank you for uh, inviting us up to your home here in Carnarvon and for taking your time out today to uh, to talk to us. You're very welcome. This is the Republic of Coviland, I call it. <laughs> the independent state. <laughs> it's been brilliant. We're doing a bit of a, a road trip today of North Wales. It's always road trips up here. Once you get out of the um, urban conurbations of South East Wales, you get up here, it has to be a road trip. Unless you're a keen cyclist, there's no way. No. Areas like Gwynedd, this county, it's so... Large. Yeah. And Powys is the same, you know. And it's always, it's a bit like um, Kerouac's on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. jump on a train and off you go. But it's always a road trip. I flew up today, but I was listening to um, Keris's documentary about the A470 that she did a few years ago for BBC. And that was really interesting, talking about different areas and the geography and how it affected that area and the people from it. It's probably a good place to start there in terms of you growing up and what you were interested in and the punk movement. The, you didn't think that there was anything in Wales that suited your interests and you did look outside and look into England. You did say that in David Owens's book that you were very cynical and, and hated everything Welsh. Um, you saw being Welsh as just the Eisteddfod. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can indeed. I'm just going to say one thing about the A470. If yeah. you travel either way, north, south, south, north, on the A470, it's probably the best crash course in Welsh landscape. Yeah. <laughs> because every 20, 30 miles, you go from industrial to green fields to, you know, Brecon Beacons or whatever it is, mid Wales. Yeah. It's one of the best journeys if you look out the window and you just want to get a sense of Wales. Superb. So, with myself, I grew up in a place called Llanfa Carignan in mid Wales. Very, very rural. And the school that I was in, it was fine in many ways, but they were all farmers and pretty well all 
interrelated. <laughs> and my parents had come from the um, slate quarrying areas of Nantle Valley, but they'd moved to Mid Wales as teachers. So when my brother, Sean Sebbin, and myself went to school, we were always seen as incomers. Popol Thuad, they call it in Welsh. Okay. So we're not really related to any of them. And it sort of made us outsiders, even in primary school, yeah. which is ridiculous. So psychologically, you're carrying this baggage somewhere. You know, you had your mates. They were good mates. We had a lot of fun. But you were always aware you know, we did. We didn't go to chapel for once. Uh, one one thing, we were non-chapel goers. So that everybody else went to Sunday school. You know, we had no idea what not Sunday school. We had enough school. <laughs> you don't more school on a Sunday. You should be out on your bikes or exploring. You know. So there was always that sense. And then as it became, you know, teenage period, um, I suffered really badly from acne. And I had what they call septic acne, so it was really bad. You know, it was horrible to hit that age where everybody else is getting girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever. And I just felt so zero confidence, felt ugly, had no girlfriends. And there was also the sense politically, because we weren't part of that Estevard, Chapel, Irv uh, culture of being lost. You know, and as you go through your teenage years, you start to sort of think, you know, who am I? What, what's it all about? All those big things, little things, big things that teenagers have. And I would describe myself as deeply unhappy, very aware that something didn't make sense, but I had no idea what it was. Yeah. So I was really angry, really unhappy lacking in all those things of confidence. The only thing I was good at, really, was cross-country running, the okay. only thing I had a success in. And I ran for the county, and I quite liked my cross-country. That kept me going. And then all of a sudden, I'd have been about 16, 15, 16, I guess, I hear the Sex Pistols. <laughs> and it's like somebody putting the light on when yeah. you go, that's it. And I had no idea what I was looking for. I was not interested in music, never really not really interested in music. Obviously, we had Elvis and Beatles records at home. We had David Ewan and Hugh Jones, Heather Jones records at home. But it didn't really mean, you know, like that Chuck D thing, Elvis meant shit to me. Well, none of that really meant anything. And then all of a sudden, you just hear the Sex Pistols and you think, well, this sonically, yeah. sonically speaks to me. And then when I saw the state of, as he was then, rotten, and Sid Vicious, and they were covered in spots. I just thought, bloody hell, you've got these people in a band, and they're worse than me. <laughs> Sid's skin was worse than mine. I thought, this is brilliant. you know. And Sid was quite funny, because his big line was, I've met the man in the street, oh, God, yeah. and he's a C-U-N-T. <laughs> yeah. you know? And I just thought, this guy talks a lot of sense. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, as, as I looked into it, to be absolutely honest with you, I thought the music, God Save the Queen, I don't think I've ever Amazing. heard such an anthem. And you just thought, right, it starts wrong, doesn't it? At the top. Yeah. And I just like that sense when Leiden sang No Future in England's Dreaming. That got me going politically because I knew I was Welsh and I spoke Welsh at home. And I sort of thought, that makes sense. That is it, isn't it? There is no future in England's Dreaming. Yeah. And it could be Wales is dreaming, anybody's dreaming. And I identified with that nihilistic, bombastic, fuck you thing. 
statements. It was just made sense. And then immediately afterwards, I was reborn. You know, in my head, this is it. I'm now punk rock. (laughs) And you learn. And for me, what was really interesting was the theories that people like Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren, and specifically Jamie Reid brought in to the whole package. And I got really interested in Jamie's artwork, really interested in the situationist thing. And I couldn't find anything in Wales to identify with. So it's not going to be David Ewan at that point. It's not going to be Tom Jones and Shirley at that point. It's not going to be Dave Edmonds even at that point. There's none of that, uh, you know, speaking to me. So my idea, I remember my mum, bless her, she she saw Edward H. Davis on the telly and said, come and have a look at this Welsh band. And I looked at them and they just looked bearded, looked like farmers. There may have been a beard on stage. And I'd seen Debbie Harry on Top of the Pops doing Denis Denis. Yeah in a little red <laughs> shirt <laughs> and red boots. And, you know, you just, you're beginning to understand sex as a, you know, a distant concept. But you sort of go, right, okay, there's this thing called sex. Debbie Harry fits that. <laughs> and bless them, Edward H. You just thought, no. they just like looked like people down a pub. Now, today, I always say this, Clive Harpwood and myself are, you know, fellow travellers. I've got a lot of time for him, a lot yeah. of respect for him. And we, we speak the same language. But at the time, it needed that punk thing just to sort of be the wake-up call and the call to arms and the political manifesto. But my thing then, very much influenced by the Mid-Wales background, was, okay, this is all London, so the Clash singing about the Westway. Um, I always thought the Slits were probably the most interesting band in that early days because Viv and Ari and Tessa, they just really, they were more punk than the Sex Pistols and the Clash put together, you know. But the question was, how does this relate to my experiences in Wales? So I'm listening to The Clash Clash, I'm listening to Cuts by The Slits, I'm listening to Never Mind The Bollocks, but really it's a different experience, it's a London experience. So I started thinking what we need to do is not translate this stuff, but transplant it into the Welsh Garden. Adapt. So the theories that Jamie had about situationists uh, psychogeography, the the artwork, the cut and paste artwork, the slogans. I really liked Never Trust a Hippie, you see, because where we lived in Mid Wales, it was full, full <laughs> of Citroen driving hippies. <laughs> and they were all incomers. In those days, late 70s, they certainly didn't engage with anything Welsh. None of them would have learnt Welsh. They were just alternative society. And Jamie's thing about Never Trust a Hippie, I kind of got that because I thought, well, these people are so alternative, they're not engaged with where they live. Yeah. And I thought that was strange, you know, a strange idea. We want to change the world, but we're not involved with the actual local community. So it was a case of trying to work out from that Joe Strummer manifesto Bible, you know, the Viv Albertine Bible. How do we transplant this stuff? And slowly but surely, you apply that to Wales. And it really was a case of everything in Wales is shit. It's all shit. It's always been shit. We're not interested. How can we create a new narrative? Yeah, do it for yourself. You've got to do it yourself. And then as I was thinking, somehow or the other, I still think it's one of the most remarkable things that's ever happened. It's over a period of a few years but slowly but surely, you have somebody like Malcolm Neon making this sort of Ultravox style John Fox music in Welsh, single notes on keyboards. 
And I remember the Welsh really hating Malcolm Nairn. What's the point? You know, it's, we've got Edward H. What's the point of Malcolm <laughs> Nairn? And you think, well, isn't it really good that in the Welsh language you now have electronic music, yeah. throbbing gristle or whatever it is, or you know, cabaret voltaire happening in the Welsh language? And at that point, I sort of realised, ah, they're not going to go with this. The Welsh conservative Methodist mass is not going to get this. And then, as you do, you know, you slowly but surely, I got involved by um, putting on a gig for a band called Essential Logic. Yeah. Laura Logic was an ex-member of um, X-Ray Specs, as was Rich T, the drummer. I'd met them in Clamacarania, and they were recording up in Voyle Studios, a local studio. I'd actually met them in the pub, and Laura Logic, they were recording for about two weeks for Rough Trade, asked if I could put on a gig while they were in the studio. And to be honest with you, this is the way it works, isn't it? All enthusiasm, zero sense. <laughs> I went, yes. And then she goes, all we need is a PA. And this is completely true. I went, okay. And then I went from the pub and I thought, shit, what's a PA? <laughs> I had no idea. What's a PA? So luckily there was a kid in school with us, um, Mark. They used to call him Chili for some reason. And... He took his own life not so long ago, and I've never quite understood why. But Mark had a band. They were called the Beehive Cats. They used to rehearse in a pub called the Beehive in a place called Manavon, which is where Aris Thomas was rector. So they had this band, and we used to go to their gigs because we were mates in school. And I sort of said to Mark, um, right, we're going to put on Essential Logic. Have you got a PA? And he said, yes. Oh, right, can you bring it to this gig? And I didn't realise that you should pay for these things. <laughs> so poor old Mark brought his PA down, they set up, and I never dreamt that you need to pay. <laughs> anyway, we put on Essential Logic and about 200 people put turned up. and made quite a lot of money in those days, you know, and I think we charged them about a quid, so it's 200 quid. And we put them on in the Institute in Llanwyr. And I was doing it, another mate of mine was David Gwynn, who's the milkman, and he was good with money. So I got David Gwynn on the door because I thought he can deal with a dosh. And there was so much... You know, you're talking about 1979, 200 quid is like £2,000 today. Yeah. So we sort of went, right, we got so much bloody money and we had it in a biscuit tin. So every 30 minutes or so, I literally climbed on the roof of the Institute, up a drain pipe and stashed the money. Because <laughs> I thought, well, the end of the night, the farmers will turn up, we'll get mugged and they'll nick the cash. <laughs> and it just shows punk rock. It was insane. Yeah. Insane. And at the end of the night, we, we had this social conscious thing. Conscience. Uh, conscious. Conscience, isn't it? Social conscience thing. And people had been drinking and the toilets were flooded with puke. It was mayhem, you know. Essential Logic loved it. It was a great gig for them. But being sort of punk rock, we decided, right, we can't leave it like this. So we cleaned. My brother and myself and a few of us, we cleaned the toilets, we cleaned, we picked up every fag stump, we had a, I had to put my hands down the toilet to get the puke out, and we left it in pristine condition, yeah. you know, you, you sort of respect it. And that was the crash course, you know, you'd put on this band Essential Logic, <laughs> you'd cleared up the puke at the end of the night, <laughs> and from that point onwards, honestly, it was, right, we're in, this is it. <laughs> We're in. Was it at the same sort of time where you would have heard like Clug Odfer and, and sort of turned you on to like Welsh language punk yeah. scene as well? Crucial in all this was the John Peel show. Yeah. So for all of us who were lost souls every single night, 10 till 12, 
we'd listen to Peel. And that kept you going. Um, you know, you, you could argue that it saved your life because whatever hell we went through in school or whatever hell you went through with acne, Peel, that two hours every night where you'd hear Scritty Politti yeah. or you'd hear the ruts or something, it literally, you'd feel so good for hours on end, days on end. God, the new single by Generation X, you know, Wild Youth. You just play it, play it, play it. But Peel would play uh, bands like Tank that were on Trinacore's label. It's a good fun he would play. Trinacore Angela used to play regularly. And I remember saying to my mum, because I used to listen to Peel upstairs, and then my mum would come upstairs. And, of course, she was really supportive of the our interest in Welsh culture. She'd failed to get us in there, you know, engaged on the Edward H thing in, the, in those days. And then I would say, hey, you know, there's this band called Trinacore. Peel's just played Angela. And you sort of then learn, hang on, there is other stuff in Wales, it's yeah. not just us. And I went to see Geraint German in Dolgella in 1979 on my Honda CB250 motorbike, <laughs> all alone. And I turned up at this gig, and I turned up at 8 o'clock, and there was no one in the venue. And I stood by the stage till about 11 o'clock. And then when the pub shut, a couple of hundred people turned up, and German came on stage. And it was like, ah, oh, this is a Welsh gig, then, is it? They, they go to the pub. And I stood there for three hours waiting. <laughs> no idea when they were going to hit the stage. No idea when, you know, I didn't know anybody. And Jarman, I saw him recently in um, Theatre Cluid in Mould, and I told him this, I can actually tell you what you were all wearing. And Titch Gwilym had combat trousers on, a black Harrington jacket, and a red Skreg T-shirt. That's how much it meant. Yeah, You yeah, knew yeah. what they wore. And I just looked at Titch and said, he's got combats and a Harrington jacket. That was cool. Incredible thing. You know, those things are life-changing. Yeah. So I had a girlfriend in school who'd got the red DP by Trina Koch, so I borrowed that off her, um, the one with Angela on it. And another mate of ours, Wynn, he, he lived up in a place called Voyle. He had Gwesty Cymru, Janma's album. So we in sixth form, we'd swap, not swap records permanently, but lend them, yeah. you know, you listen to them the weekend. So listening to that red 12-inch EP by Trina Koch with Angela on it, was life-changing. And then Gwesty Cymru, Beirth Gwleidyddol, SOS Galwch Gary Trevon, and probably more than any other song, Rockers. And you just listen, I can remember listening to them on a Saturday afternoon and just make, again, you're in. So now it's Sod the Sex Pistols and The Clash. We've got Geraint Jarman. He was already there, but I'd never heard of him, you see. So those things are absolutely, they inform you, they direct you, they inspire you. And it's like road trip yeah, yeah. discovery. Um, you were saying about um, John Peel obviously being a big, um, one of the first sort of uh, proponents for Welsh language music. And obviously you were such a big fan of him and suddenly you were, you know, pursuing him and giving him tapes and actively knocking on doors on the country. What was that first meeting like with you? Because I, I read that um, you went up to him in a pub and he said, said you're not going to mug me. It was quite funny. <laughs> this is fast forwarding a while now. By 83, 84, that period, we'd now hooked up with David R. Edwards, Dublucky, and Wynn Dublucky, Mark and Paul Kirf, Dylan Kirf. We'd met these people on the scene yeah. and they were all forming bands. And they were all like-minded souls. The interesting thing with Mark of Catatonia, with David Dublucky, of course we had conversations, but we never had to have conversations about what it's all about. We all knew. So it was literally meeting like-minded souls. And the idea was, this is well-documented, they were all forming bands. We'd already formed Anrev. 
we'd been out playing support to bands like Matthew Mr. Hughes, uh, Rhiannon Thomas, and slightly younger than those bands, and realising we actually need to be with Kirf, with Deplagy. And I'd had this idea of setting up a record label, and then I realised, you know, doing singles with all these bands is going to take a lot of money, a lot of time. So I came up with the idea, which, which was Crass, the band Crass, their idea of compilation albums for new bands. So we went into Voile Studios, which is the same studio as uh, Rough Trade we're using up in Tanmer, recorded Kirf, recorded Dablaki, recorded Tunnel to Ill. And it is true, I signed Tunnel to Ill on the basis of their looks. <laughs> they looked like the birds. And I went up to them and said, are you lot in a band? And they actually were, but they just looked like the birds. And I thought, well, we've got to have them on because they were so cool, loafers and polar necks and things. Luckily, they could play. You know, it was a great band in the end. So once we got that record made, it, it comes back to punk rock and this idea of more enthusiasm than sense. We made a thousand of Camera to Atluch vinyl. And then literally, this is the way I my brain works. I went, right, I'm going to go to London and I'll go around Enemy and Sounds and Melody Maker and Zigzag and Peel and all of them in a day. And I thought, right, what I'm going to do is put all these records in a plastic bag so when I finish, I don't have to carry anything home. I'll be hands-free. <laughs> so that was my brain. So I had about 30 vinyls in a plastic bag and I got down to London and my first port of call was Carnaby Streets where Enemy were in those days. And you could just walk in. And it was insane. You know, no appointments. They didn't know. And I would just go, where's Mick Mercer? Or where's um, Stephen Wells or whatever? They'd point to his desk. And I would just say, we're from Wales. You need to listen to this. And then they'd look at you as if you were a Martian. <laughs> and you'd go. And then they'd review it. Yeah. Two weeks later. And on that day, I'd done the rounds, you know, I'd figured it all out. So we'd been to Melody Maker, Sounds, all these places. And the last port of call was Portland House because it was close to Euston. So it was all, you know, in, in my little brain, it made sense. Finish with Peel and then jump on the train, last train home. Uh, <laughs> and I went to the reception in the BBC and I said, oh, is it possible to see John Peel? You know, you wouldn't even get through the revolving doors today. There'd be security. Yeah. You'd be on the floor, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, wrestled you know that, out. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, oh, he's in the uh, white bar around the corner. Right, okay. So off I went, and I walked into this wine bar, and he was there with a band called the Higsons. And they were all having a meal and a glass of wine. And I sort of walked up to them with this record. And Peel sort of looks up, you know, and he goes, um, you're not going to mug me, I hope. <laughs> It was the same answer. No, we're from Wales. We've got this record. He said, sit down. And um, he offered me some wine and introduced me to the Hicksons. And I obviously knew who they were from listening to him. And we sat down, had a bit of a chat and, um, you know, got, got home on the train. And it was two weeks later, still listening to Peel every night. And you're beginning to think he's not interested. Didn't get it. This happening. And I was driving somewhere. And then the next minute, he played Rulen Moscow, an Andrew song on that compilation. Yeah. And that night, that feeling of we'd been trying to get this thing, underground scene, we used to call it in Wales, happening. And then you're on John Peel, whatever it was, three million listeners. Yeah, and I remember amazing. sitting in the car just going, right, you bastards, whatever <laughs> happens now, you cannot stop this train. <laughs> you know, the, the button's been pressed, bang. And that night when I got back to Bangor, I went round all of them in Andrew and said, we've just been played on Peel. It was absolutely, absolutely amazing. But then he kept doing it. Two days later, Dabla Giron. Three days later, Elvin Presley Giron. And it was like a revolution. 
did um, the weeklies take a bit more convincing? I, I've been reading um, Dave Owen's book recently and he, and he mentions in that about David Quantic and the enemy taking quite a bit of persuading. Can you elaborate on that at all? Well, I guess playing the game, I understood clearly that you had to get in to the enemy. That's what people read. My belief in that Blicky and Kirf and all these bands was so certain that I had no fear phoning these people up. I'm sure they must have thought it's that irritating little wanker from North Wales again. <laughs> Stop it. You know, you just wouldn't take no. We were fearless, you know, in those days. We had such a belief we were totally fearless. So it was very much kicking down doors. Yeah. I remember being on a panel around that time um, in the Hacienda, and I was on a panel with Tony Wilson, Marky e. Smith, Pauline from Penetration. We were all on this panel. Abbo from um, UKDK, who's Mr. Keris Matthews these days. We were all on this panel. And, you know, my attitude was they were all sort of going, oh, it's difficult to get press, being serious. And I said, well, we just kick down the doors. <laughs> we just go in. And they, even though they were sort of punk rock before I was punk rock, they'd never quite understood. We were coming from a Welsh direct action pacifist, but direct action. So our thing was, right, let's kick down the doors. And Quantic, when we finally got the interview with Enemy, we met David Quantic in Houston, and Sean and myself turned up pretty dishevelled. And we stood in Houston going, which one is the um, Enemy journalist? And we couldn't see him. Bloody hell, they've ditched us, you know, they've stitched us up, there's no interview. And then there's this one guy, pretty straight looking, by one of the escalators in a raincoat, and he was the only one still there. And we thought, it can't be him. He doesn't look like a journalist. We had no idea what an enemy journalist looks like. <laughs> and it was Quantic. So eventually, one of us go, are you David Quantic? He goes, yes, yeah. And interestingly with Quantic, his headline, if I remember correctly, was Welsh Ray Beats or something yeah. like that. And he kind of got it. We we were shooting on full cylinders. We, we said ridiculous things like, anyone who's got any belief in God is not allowed on the label. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he printed all this nonsense. There's a lot of stuff there that we were just being, being asked three. <laughs> so that was one thing, you know, no, oh, no, no, we, we vet them. If they believe in God, we won't record them. There's all sorts of crap which he printed. We had a pop about Mike Peters, which was really not on and really unfair. And we were, you know, Mike Peters and myself are buddies these days, but oh, they're not Welsh because they don't sing in Welsh. It was full of crap, really. But you knew with enemy, say something wild because no one will take any notice. So the combination of Peel and things like The Enemy in those days, they were they were reached a lot of people. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you're then playing in Bristol or Newcastle, and I always say they knew the words to the songs. Obviously not, because we were singing in Welsh, but they'd be singing along. Yeah. They'd heard these things on Peel. So the audience was singing along, even though they were obviously... Yeah, they didn't know the words. <laughs> they didn't know the words. <laughs> But they said, oh, that song the Peel played last night, Action Man or something, whatever, you know. So it changed. And it, it was really quickly. And there was a strong fanzine scene. So a lot of the gigs came through fanzines. You'd get a letter. This is the, the way it worked in those days. Letter would come through the post. Some kid from Gateshead, will you come and play in our little venue? Off we went. And the fanzines would print your address, you see, so you'd get some kid in oh, okay. Norwich who'd interview you for whatever fanzine, and then always at the end of it, contact. So this is early 80s, mid 80s, there's no emails, no mobile phones, 
mainly letters as prefax. So, as you said, the, the meeting with John Peel is well documented. But if you wouldn't mind indulging me right now, because I guess like what isn't actually well documented is the the record that you carried in your in your bag, you know, obviously there was a 30th anniversary several years back and the BBC Radio Company did a, a documentary on it but it's, it is credited as being sort of the catalyst for kickstarting a Welsh music revolution and it probably doesn't get the credit it deserves obviously you talked about kicking through the doors and those doors were then opened for not just the bands on that record like that Bluggy and Kev and stuff like that but the future bands that came through and in inverted commas the cool Cymru scene yeah. and maybe a lot of the things that are happening now and it was probably responsible for changing that Attitudes in Wales and the Welsh media. Yeah, it's just a, a really interesting album in itself, you know, limited to a thousand copies, black and white painting by, I think, your brother's friend, Beth Ann, yes. featuring Death with a scythe. And, you know, it also features a uh, young Griff Reese on drums in Macklin. <laughs> yeah. and, and then you sold the the first copies in the back of a, uh, an alarm gig, alarm is that right? Gig, yeah. yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about that, that well, album? When we met up with people like Dave Dablucky, Mark and Paul Kirf, Ian Santowit, we saw kindred spirits, fellow travellers, and these were the revolutionaries. So it's a little bit, I always used to think of it like the Magnificent Seven film, <laughs> where you're rounding these people up, yeah? And slowly, oh, we find Dave Dupluggy. We went down to Cardigan to meet Dave, and the meeting was in the bandstand in Abertavia. God knows why. <laughs> we sat there, and we sort of said, right, there's two bands. How do we do that? How do we turn this into revolution? And then days later, weeks later, we have the same conversation with Mark and Paul and Dylan and Barry Corley and Dan Roost. And then we have the same conversation in Bethesda with Tunnel to It. And we knew because none of us argued about what the vision was. We just, it was always like, you know, we've got to get this done. Let's get, whatever, let's get it in the studio. It was full on enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, so the process was, we knew Dave Anderson up at Voile Studios. Let's book the studio. Let's get these tracks recorded. And I sat there with all of them. Yeah. And when I heard a team led by Dablicky, it was on a Saturday afternoon. And I was up in the control room with Dave Anderson, hearing that song come together and you tingle. And you go, that is a hit record, which people like Griff Rees have covered. But I knew, yeah. sat there, this is it. This is, the, the music speaks. And no one anywhere can turn that, you know, they, they can't dismiss that. They cannot like it. And then Lebanon, which was the first record that we did with Kirf, just the energy in that record. So for me... It just 100%, 200% made sense. This is the revolution. So from that point onwards, you don't even look back. You don't even think. You know this is it. And I used to watch Mark on stage and just think, that's it. Years later, when he's doing Catatonia, when he's doing Mr. Now, yeah. you know that in a way you were right. He was just a young kid. Hadn't started shaving in those days kind of thing. <laughs> but you knew so that record, I think Peel called it Rough and Ready on some documentary, which yeah. it was. It was yeah. the first time most of them had been in a studio. But it was, it was like the manifesto, you know, that you stick up on the wall and you say, this is it. Yeah. So it was year zero. Everything that's been in Wales is now redundant. Yeah. This is the new. And having a compilation meant it was instant. And a lot of people, you know, this is the story, obviously, that Radio Cymru thought a lot of the bands were not suitable for airplay. We milk that. The more they said, mm, you know, we're not sure about that lucky, we'd go out and say, we've just been banned. So we turned that, you know, yeah. the more they resisted, the more we used that, if you like. We yeah. just understood it was the Malcolm McLaren and, um, you know, Bernie Rhodes textbook. 
let's create as much confrontation as possible. And it was also interesting because very, very early on, there was a big change, that record, the audience were non-Welsh speakers coming to the gigs. So the Welsh language speakers not coming, didn't see them. And we, we, we're, we're in Porth Ronda, we're in, I don't know, D-side or wherever we are. We're in Blaine Fistiniog, which obviously would have been Welsh speakers. But it wasn't the traditional yeah. scene. It was a new, very much pissed off, agitated, looking for the new. And interestingly, in the early gigs, there weren't that many people in the gigs, but people like Rhysi Evans, the actor, at the gigs. Yeah. Dewi Prasod, the author, at the gigs. Even Gitto Beb, the Conservative MP for a while, at the gigs. And you see those early, early fans are all people who did things, whether yeah. you agree or disagree with what they've done. They were people who were thinking, and they'd understood. You buy into Kirf, you buy into Andrew, you buy into that like it's the new Wales. But for us, you see, playing in, say if it was Porth from the Chalky, that was really important for us because we were trying to say, sod being Welsh bands, never mind the language, this is it. Just get on board. We're all engaged in this new narrative. So it's a rewriting of everything. And it only attracted like-minded souls for a long, long time. There's several years where Peel's playing it and we're getting audiences in Newcastle. Yeah. But then in Wales, it's a hard slog trying to get those people. So we never, ever had the mainstream. And a really funny story, our mates, uh, Matthew and Mr. Hughes, the band, right? They were slightly ahead of us. But two of them, Gwyn and Sean, eventually became members of Andrew on guitar and drums. They used to play places like Sarn in Llyn, and they'd have 500 farmers having a fight at their gig. <laughs> and they'd be locked in the dressing room, not able to play. And we were always jealous and saying, oh, we never have these riots in our gigs. Because in early Andrew and Kirk days, we'd have 15 people who believed. Yeah. So we didn't have anyone who didn't like us. You didn't have anyone who said, ooh, what's this? The only people who came got it. So they'd heard us on Peel, they'd read about us in a fanzine, they understood where we were coming from. So for a long, long time, it was fans organising gigs. We would just go. We were so happy to do it. I don't think we ever looked up from the stage. It was always, right, go. <laughs> you didn't think it's only 12 disappointed. It was 12 converts, if you like. Yeah. We were totally, totally happy that anyone had turned up and then we would talk to them and Sean Seben always says this it was very much yes we were on stage and yes you'd put on a show and jump around <laughs> but we were always at one with the audience you spend hours I mean I used to do it with um, the Newport lots that came to see us in Cardiff which is people like Chris from the Darling Buds and all these guys Bedis, all that lot they used to come to see us in Cardiff and there were no trains we would drive them back to Newport in the back of the van as a thank you for coming yeah, to the gig. Yeah. Then I would drive back to Cardiff to wherever we were staying. And that was normal, normal. So you'd just say to them, as your train gone, yeah, don't worry, jump in the van. And you'd do that. Yeah. You know, that's not asking for brownie points. That's, mm. That was the philosophy of it. They've turned up, take them home. Didn't, <laughs> didn't even, you know, you didn't need sleep in those days yeah. when you were 25. <laughs> you just... It was great. Well, well talking of um, needing no sleep, one thing that's always um, astonished me with Anne Revenry is, you, you, is your total commitment to honing your craft and the sheer amount of gigs you did, like 300 a year some years, um, all across the country, all across Europe, um, playing in East Berlin, West Berlin, uh, around the time of the collapse of the Berlin War. Yeah. And that was something you instilled in the band you managed as well, just, just get out there, perform, and just get better that way, yeah? 
we learned the lesson from Matthew Mr. Hughes that I've mentioned this band. They clocked up in one year 100 gigs. And on the back of their first album, they've got their wall planner on the back of the album <laughs> with all these dates. Yeah. And I thought, that's the model. Now, we need to do more than them. Yeah. But there was one year, probably more than one year, but I worked it out one year that we spent more nights not in our own beds because we were touring. So we were crashing on people's floors more than we'd spent in our own beds in one year. But that's what we did. I can't tell you now, looking back, the thrill of going past Birmingham on a Saturday afternoon in a van on very much more empty motorways in those days, en route to Newcastle. I loved it. You know, we've just been to Swindon. We're bypassing Birmingham. We're going to Newcastle tonight. For me, and it was very much with the Andrew and boys, we lived for that. It was just brilliant. You turn up, you'd meet new people, you'd have a chat, get something to eat, hit that stage, stay with them overnight. So we ended up, we used to call them hotels, but they were always somebody's floor. You'd have conversations then with some kid or some lady promoting in Durham or whatever it was, you know, and it just felt Pat, and they all knew John Robb from the Membranes, and they all knew Chumba Wumba, and they all knew the X from Holland, and it became like this international network of like-minded souls. Mm. And then we ended up playing with Membranes and Chumba Wumba and all these bands doing animal rights benefits. So the whole thing became a international community. It was superb. Can you talk about Cry? And obviously Anne Redden played at the top of uh, Snowden. Uh, for the launch of the of the label, and <laughs> and you said that it was the the closest thing you get to musical terrorism. What can you remember about that day? It's funny. So the cry thing was an independent label within Sign. Yeah, and because of the work we were doing abroad, I'd started having conversations with Davidy one at Sign again. I think paths just cross. I think David and myself had enough common ground, and there was no actual agenda or point to the conversations but I used to go down a sign and chat to David about things you know we just have a chat and I think we got on and then David sort of turned around and said right you're working internationally would you be interested in helping us on an international thing so I worked with them it, it turned out to be 10 years freelance but the aim was to look at bands that Sign or Cry were involved with. So David had already set up the label. It was never my my label. Whether they could work internationally. So it's really a case of carrying on. We'd got agents in Germany, Belgium, Basque Country, Spain, Czech Republic, all over the place. So I would phone my agents up and say, right, can we do a tour for Utant or um, Fakofi or whoever, and just expand that whole thing. But then slowly but surely spending more time at sign with with the cry label inevitably when kirf came to an end and mark and keris had started with catatonia i was very very aware of what catatonia had before they'd really done anything mm. but just seeing keris and mark you sort of knew that is it was like seeing double again kirf first time round. this is definitely the next thing so I got in touch with Mark. I'd lost touch with him because um, it'd been a few years. Andrew had been busy touring abroad. Kirf had sort of fizzled out. So we'd kind of lost maybe two or three years contact. I'm not quite sure. Probably something like that. And I had to phone his mum up to get hold of a number for him because he'd moved to Cardiff. I didn't even know how to get hold of him. And I phoned him up and I'd heard Gadagwain, the first sort of Catatonia recording that Crew Beer had done. And I said, Mark, bloody hell, 
And he goes, what are you saying, Chris? I said, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm saying you've got to do something with this. Yeah. I have no idea. It was, again, you go back to emotionally, you know it's going to work, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. So I went down to Cardiff to Gold Street, hooked up with Mark and Keris, and I think we agreed that I'd kind of act as a manager and just move it forward. With the whole Catatonia thing, in terms of pop music, it was so obvious they had it. Mm. So obvious. So my thing with them was 200% commitment and belief, and I know this is going to work. So from that point on, from that first meeting in Gold Street, it's let's just get on with it. Yeah. So you don't really have a master plan. There's no strategy. It's just let's phone up John Robb, have a listen to this demo, John. Let's phone somebody else up. And then we had enough contacts uh, from Andrim to get them gigs, certainly in London. But my first sort of thing as an acting manager was that they used to play in a pub called the um, uh, Yellow Kangaroo in Splot. Yeah. And I just thought this band is going to be huge. Don't really want them playing in front of their mates. And I sort of said, right, let's stop that. And they, they were a young band at the time, inexperienced in many ways. So we went to Germany, we went to France just to get them some gigs through agents that we'd worked with Anrim. The idea was, let's get them toughened up without yeah. people seeing them. Yeah. But I didn't want that sort of Cardiff thing. Oh, you're brilliant, you're lovely, you're great, you're this. But it's just your mates. That doesn't count for anything. You need to be learning your craft, honing your craft in front of people you don't know. Yeah. Keris's idea was, let's get a record deal. So I went around record companies trying to get people interested and they weren't, you know, they, they, it's like a dinosaur record companies. They move slowly. They, they, they don't know what talent is. They yeah. just respond when the buzz gets to a certain level. And it was Mark who turned around and said, right, we need to get a record out. And I said, well, we can do it with Cry. Because yeah. effectively by that point, it was me running it, Davy, that kind of handed it over to myself. So I always knew getting a single out, which was the four Tinkerbell single, was a possibility on Cry. And then we sort of, I think it was in a van, in a, you know, we were in a van going to a Catatonia gig somewhere. We had this discussion. I said, well, look, you get the single out. It helps to get them interested. It's a bit better than the bloody cassettes that we've got at the moment. So let's get a record. Yeah. You know, because we were literally giving people copies of cassettes. They self-produced that in the studio and signed. Paul was really hands-on. I remember them listening. don't know whether it was the Pixies, but they were listening to other records and comparing their sound sonically. Yeah. Not not ripping things off, but making sure that they sounded as good. I'd never seen anyone do that before, and that was Paul, the bass player. He was really, you know, really on it in the yeah. studio. Again, I sat there thinking, great record. You knew. Yeah. You knew. And it was only a matter of time. I phoned up Mark Radcliffe, who was doing the evening show. He was doing that effectively, what was the Peel uh, slot. Phoned Radcliffe up, and he started playing them nightly, every blooming night on Radio 1. And, of course, that was the game changer because... Every single record company yep. got in touch. And then all of a sudden, this idea that Keris had of a record deal became very much a reality. The whole thing became very, it was exciting, but very fraught as well, because I was trying to help them and control it in the sense, at least look after their best interest. But the it was like a runaway train. And I knew, you know, I knew my time was limited. They're going to go. Yeah. I knew that. I could see that coming. So my idea was, well, let's do what we can. And I'll try and manage, not as a manager, but manage the whole runaway train thing as best as possible. Looking back now, I always say this, I was right. <laughs> you know, whatever they all say, because it was a long time. It was 18 months that I did with them of people going, oh, well, you know, we don't know. And I was going, oh, for God's sakes. So looking back now, you say, 
That was totally right. Yeah. You, you knew that band had potential. With Cry, I felt all we're doing here is developing bands and then off to London, London they go. Yeah. And you sort of see the futility in that. And at the same time, I was having conversations with Hugh from the Poo Sticks, uh, 60 Foot Dolls he was managing, and a few other people. And that's the, that's the beginnings of thinking about the Welsh Music Foundation that happened. It's the realisation, what are we worth, boys? Are we just sitting here developing talents for these dickheads in London? Yeah. And then we get, not only do we get no thanks, you get legal things <laughs> coming through the post and threatening letters and, you know, it's not worth it. So there was a, a new period there of realising we seriously need to develop the industry within Wales and the experience, the Catatone experience specifically for me, but he would have, had the experience of managing the dolls. That's the beginning of let's build up things in Wales. Yeah. And it also coincides with those bands who've gone to London reaching the giddy heights of pop stardom. So the cool Cymru thing kicks in. So in terms of Sightsgeist and Welsh musical history, again, it makes sense. Because all those bands like Far Coffees and Kirfs who've done these early records and done the rounds, and now experienced when they become super furries and catatonia, they can do top of the pops and they've been on telly 20 times on S4C. Yeah. So they're experienced. So I think that period, the late 90s, it was good. You know, that's the period where the Manics, Stereophonics, catatonia, furries, 60 foot dolls, Gorkies, Darling Buds, Darling Buds slightly ahead maybe, those bands are sort of recognised. And I know they all disagree with the cool Wales thing, cool Cymru. They all hate that. But my thing was, well, it's better than being uncool Cymru. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd, we'd lived, you know, yeah. we'd lived through sheep shaggers yeah. and Shirley Bassies. <laughs> and my perspective was, I don't care about the media labels, come yeah. on. You know, I know the furries were really wound by it. I would have sort of said, shut up, you're selling records, yeah. who cares? Yeah. You know, we were experts at not selling records. So these yeah. new bands have got a chance so who cares what they're saying in Enemy or Smash Hits, really? Just do your thing. Yeah. And that happened, didn't it? That became a reality. I guess even like now, we, we, we've spoken about, spoken about it a couple of times. You look at what's going on in Wales, and there is a better, I won't say industry, but a better infrastructure for, for music. Obviously, it's moved on considerably in terms of the financial benefit that music brought. But, you know, you've got people like uh, Griffith Libertino, Oz Gwyneth in Kosh, um, Alan and Kev in, in Pist. And they sort of saw it the first time round and they're sort of like using their experience to help the young artists lean on them and learn from maybe not the mistakes, but, you know, what, what experiences they had at that time. And Yeah, because I think if you look at Wales as a whole, we're only three million people. Yeah. So in a way, the, the difference with Wales and most of these places is Bristol or Liverpool or Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow, Edinburgh, almost, it's not quite, but they almost have the same yeah. population number. So you have a Manchester scene with Factory Records and Joy Division and then with Happy Mondays. And that's what Cool Cymru happened in Wales. But it was a, it was a pan-Wales thing because there's no major city. But you do have bands from Newport, you do have bands from Cardiff or bands from North Wales who've moved to Cardiff. So the Welsh thing was the equivalent of what, Tony Wilson had done in yeah. Manchester in this way. So I think culturally, don't knock that. That was really good. Yeah. And then it has created um, op 
opportunities for people, you know, all sorts of industries, whether you're doing graphics or videos, it has changed things. And I think bands will always be bands and moan about things. But if you look at it from a cultural perspective, that was only good. That was only good. And it's allowed other people to follow on. So present day bands, if it's Buzzard Buzzard or Adwife or Boyazuga, they don't have the Shirley Bassey jokes. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no one cares. They just like them if they're good. But they don't go through the absolute bogs of mud that we had to wade through, you know, the, the sort of resistance that we had. And, you know, the Manics, I think, they probably had similar things in the early days, but they just didn't, you wouldn't have known they were from Wales for a long, long time. Yeah. Not until, like, sort of everything was cool, really, I yeah. suppose, isn't it? When they started flag, flag and, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose they were sort of um, kindred spirits for yourselves in terms of the situationist sort of firebrands at the start. Yeah, it's interesting with the Mannics because we're slightly older. So th- I've talked to James and Nick about this, and they remember seeing us on telly, you see. I had a funny conversation with James one night where he told me what kind of bass I had. And I went, oh, right, you're probably right. <laughs> I know I had a white one. <laughs> <laughs> and they were really like train spotters, weren't they? But similar influences, if you look at Motown Junk, yeah. you see The Clash and you see Jamie Reed in there. So, you know, it's a similar thing. But we'd been through all that in the 80s and they really kick in. It's the 90s in a way with the Manics, isn't it? So they're a different generation slightly. Interesting, because our day had passed by the time their star rose, if you like. You know, Andrim's last gig, I think, was 94 in Stuttgart, and Cool Cymru hits it 96, 97 yeah. onwards, doesn't it? It's like trains, isn't it, in the station we've passed. So we've never shared a stage with them. Yeah. But they've, you know, I think now, if you say Manic Street Preachers, it's like saying Happy Mondays in Manchester or Joy Division or Super Furries. You've got bands that are well-respected and they've come from this place so great. That is, in a way, that's what we always wanted. But then I would also say Nine Bach have done it in world music. Yeah. Gwenna's done it in whatever Gwenna does, really. It's pop <laughs> music, but, you know, with a Cornish twist and all the rest of it. They've gone and succeeded, if you like, it comes around to this conversation, where Dapluggy and Kir Fernandrev maybe pioneered in looking out. These bands, not directly, they're not, you know, they've done their own thing, but they've kind of got to where we all wanted to get to, in a way. But then we were always far too punky and underground and radical to do what they're all doing. Manics are a well-oiled machine. Andrin were disruptors. (laughs) You know, we were bad boys, always were. So we would have never, ever turned that into them. Yeah. We couldn't have done it. And I think that, Furries were kind of interesting because Griff's a visionary, Davin and those are definitely fellow travellers. They struggled with compromise because they phoned me up one night. Um, uh, there was a time in the 90s when they were on the up. If the phone rang at 3am, you knew it would be a pissed, <laughs> a very pissed David Yoyan from the Furries if the phone went at 3. And it was at the time where they were debating whether to do the Pepsi Cola adverts or something, and they've been offered millions. And I remember saying to David, well, you're on bloody Sony Columbia. (laughs) It's all dirty money. (laughs) What's the difference? But, you know, they decided against it. And I said, well, I would do Robin Hood, take the money and give it to the poor. There's a line somewhere. I still think with Andrew, we may have been part of some kind of family tree, some kind of progression, 
But do you know what? At the end of the day, we were probably more like crass than we were like super furries, even though we shared members. For us, we still veer towards, let's do an animal rights gig. Yeah. Somewhere along the line. We weren't interested in even what the Clash had done. You know, it was a different philosophy. We were, our fellow travellers when we were doing gigs were Chumbawamba and Blythe Power, Thatcher and Acid, people who were truly independent. That's where that's where we sat. Yeah. Now you host a, a show on Radio Cymru, championing Welsh music of time gone by, and also a contemporary music. Can you talk about how you got involved with that, and 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 touch upon obviously Shat Amgen, which is a a successful PL esque sort of radio show. Yeah. Well, the radio show came about literally four years ago, and the head of BBC Music turned up at the house for a conversation, and I sat down, made him a cup of tea, and I thought, what. What's going on? What does he want? And I genuinely thought they were coming to pitch an archaeology programme because a lot of my activities are with archaeology and Welsh history. And then it was really interesting because they came out with this thing with Radio Cymru that the roughly 30 to 60 audience had been lost. So it's all the people, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, you'd grown up with super furries. But we looked at this idea of people who can, who basically like Bob Dylan and Gweno. Yeah. But then the core of it is Gorky's, Mannix, Superfurdy's, Catatonia. Could we put a programme together to regain that audience? And the basis of it would be my record collection. So I've got thousands of vinyl. And some of it, uh, you mentioned earlier on, Llygod Fernig, the first ever Welsh proper punk record MCB yeah. released in 1979 so we're going to play Sigurd Furnig on the show we're also going to play God Show Me Magic obviously and then we might just play the first single by Bran from the 70s which I also have a copy of <laughs> but no one really remembers they've been really sorry they've been re-released now Bran haven't they but that was the idea of it can we re-engage that audience and I felt strongly the first show that I put together, it was 100% control. I can do what I like on the show. And on the first show, I did play That's Bluggy, and I did play Gweno. So you had That Bluggy, the coolest band ever, and Gweno, the new hip kid on the block, Welsh block. So I made sure that we played both of those records. We also put Ian Dury in the first show. It, It was just, you kind of reached out. And what we've done with the show is developed It's in my head, this is how it works. Seven till eight is drive time. So we play The Clash or Savutliad or Brodir or Gorky's. We just bang the tunes. So it's a bit like Six Music. I mean, last night's show, we opened with Big Leaves, straight into Llygodfernig, straight into Mighty Wah. So that gives you a, a broad idea and then the eight o'clock to nine o'clock hour is let's have a little bit of culture just a little bit of debate so again last night we had a young triple harp player called Kerry Savannah who's written a really well-informed article about the lack of diversity in the arts in Wales from a young female perspective quite a feminist piece mm. So we had Keris on and allowed Keris the space to just put it out there. And it was really important 
you know, it's probably the first time she'd been on the radio. Yeah. And I had to be very, very careful as an old punk how to facilitate without being know-all, patronising, yeah. patriarchal bollocks. You know, it, it was an interesting thing. But I was quite proud at the end of it. She spelt it out. And so she should. So within the show, you've got the mighty wah and big leaves. And then you've got a six-form kid from Machantleth who's just thrown a hand grenade into the Welsh cultural establishment and said, you patriarchs, brilliant. But then the nine o'clock thing, as is the case with old punks, we get into the soul. So we had Ken Booth last night, you know. We take it down and I think Whistle Test, if you remember that programme, it's album tracks. So there's a pace, it's a bit like doing a DJ set to the show, there's a pace to it. You bang the tunes out, you do a bit of culture and then you chill them. So the final hour I always enjoy because you get to play reggae and soul and funk not banging, not banging tune. But the idea with it is it's very, very similar in ethos to what Keris is doing on Six Music. We're building up a community. So we're now seeing with the programme, listening figures are really good. Yeah. And they seem to be building and sustaining. But the idea of community that people feel they have a voice, part of it... We love it. Somebody got in touch last night on Twitter saying we played Rhiannon Thomas and he goes, oh, she reminds me of Janis Joplin. And he goes, I'm sure everyone says that. And those kind of comments, they're engaging with a record from 1980, Rhiannon. Brilliant, solely funky rock. It's just amazing. So for me, it's a privilege to play Rhiannon and just say, you know what, folks, listen to this. It's a brilliant record, and she's largely forgotten. If you went to downtown Cardiff, Vox Pops, you know, what's your view on Rhiannon Thomas, pioneering blues singer from the late 70s? You know, ooh, they wouldn't have heard of her. So we've got a role there yeah. to get that stuff back out there. That's actually been re-released by um, Sign on a CD. But then we play... Atwife is one of the bands that I've actively championed to the point where I've been surprised that the BBC haven't given me a slap wrist because pl- <laughs> I think we play them every week for yeah. about three years. It is ridiculous, but they're really good. Yeah. And my view is, well, that band has developed. When I first heard them, they'd worked with Pat from Double yes. and I thought, interesting. I didn't quite understand the sort of folkiness of it, but I thought, this is interesting. And then they came up with Lipstick Cork, and I went, God, that's a progression, and that grows, and there's something clever in that song because you think it's okay. And second listening, you that's good. Third listening, that's really good. Fourth time, you go, good God, they, <laughs> I missed that bit first. And with that particular band, they've just developed to the point. I saw them playing live this weekend in Bangor, and I phoned Griff Libertine up and I said, honestly, Griff, if you asked me for any criticism, I can't. They were faultless. Heller is one of the best jazz drummers we've got in Wales. Gwentlian is one of the funkiest bass players we've got. Holly's voice is crystal clear. Holly's guitar playing, surreal. Yeah. Funky, but earthy or whatever the word is. You know, it sort of floats, but it still has funkiness. And they've now got their own groove. And I think as a band, they're probably the band I would say I'm most excited by because they're really finding their own. A lot of bands, you know, you can see what's going on with Adwife. It's now Adwife. They've, they've really gone beyond influences. They're creating wonderful band. So we need to be supporting them 
But then at the same time, I believe really strongly Al Lewis, who's a singer. Yeah, he's good. Now, Al is mainly folky acoustic, but he's done a little funky album. And some of his tracks have got a serious soul groove. And I've been playing Al, because I know the Daplucky heads are going to be, why is he <laughs> playing Al Lewis? This is not Daplucky, you know, not MCB. And I feel just as passionately, I'm not sitting there for three hours playing punk rock. We're there because we, we're music fans. We're, we're open and it feels like we, we're moving on. Reese, thank you ever so much. I, we could go on for hours and hours and hours. But he scratched the surface there, I think. I know, definitely. <laughs> we'll have to, that was the first question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to come back another time and there's plenty more that we so needed stories, to yeah. talk about. But at this point, we tend to ask our guests to name an album by a Welsh artist, either their favourite, the best one, however they determine what they should choose and induct it into the Welsh Music Hall of Fame. What have you gone for today? Well, I've gone for Colossal Youth by Young Marble Giants, which was released actually in February 1980 on Rough Trade. Now, Young Marble Giants were Cardiff-based. Yeah. And 1980, 1979, 1980 is what we would call post-punk. Yeah. So you've got all these bands like Scritti Politti, Joy Division, Stroke New Order, Au Pairs, Essential Logic, all these bands. If you think about punk, you go Sex Pistols, Clash, Slits, or whatever, adverts as well. You've had these bands that were groundbreaking and bombastic and life-changing in 1977, 78, 79. Absolute classic records. And then out of the blue comes Colossal Youth from Cardiff, Young Marble Giants, which is so quiet. So if you put Never Mind the Bollocks on the turntable and then put Colossal Youth, it's almost like a different universe. But equally powerful, equally profound, equally emotional. And when I heard Young Marble Giants, my life was changed for a second time. So after the initial punk thing, I hear this band and I go, God, I didn't know this was possible. Yeah. And it's one of the records that I played most. If you look at my vinyl copy here, I put it in a little plastic sleeve now. It's bashed. It's bashed. The record is unplayable now. It's been played so many times. And I just listened and listened and listened to that record. And the minimal thing, the little drum machine that they've got, yeah. you're never quite sure. Is it a drum machine or is it fill on the bass or whatever's going on? The scratchy guitar the steward did, just that little innocent of sorts vocals that Alison did. It is one of the most perfect records ever, really is. It just touched me two ways, intellectually, what a great record, but emotionally, it's another thing. It, it just seeps into every single port, and I didn't understand how that was possible yeah. after listening to Nevermind the Bollocks, <laughs> where they scream and shout, you know, Steve's got 30 guitar tracks hammering away. But then the fact that they were from Cardiff in 1980, which is post-industrial Cardiff, it's pre-The Bay. Yeah. You've got Butown proper. You've got the docks, you know, crumbling. So that landscape, which I experienced as a young student in Cardiff University. All this thing was just trying to work out what happens to this decaying city of Cardiff, this rundown area. You know, if you went down towards, through Grangetown, there were just boarded up places, there were no roundabouts, no fountains. It is one of the most powerful records ever. And really interesting for me, they do always say, never meet your heroes. I ended up working with a band called Tafia, from Cardiff, which is Jazz Scouse's band. 
And they did this funny little single with a song cry called Nicky Wire, You're a Liar. Oh, I remember that, <laughs> Which was a great record. And I knew Patrick Jones at this time. I said, I hope Nick's not too put out because <laughs> it's not nasty. But Phil Moxham from Young Marble Giants played bass. Oh, okay. With Tafia. And when we were doing the record, I obviously met Phil and I said, do you know what, Phil? Um, I am so honoured. And he was just laughing. He didn't get it at all. And I said, well, Young Marble Giants changed my life. But here we are in the studio and we're mates. And then very, very recently, um, it was a Keris's festival, the Good Life Experience. I curate a little stage for Keris. And we got Stuart Moxham up to play this year. Uh, 2019 and I emailed Stuart this is the, this is the way this is why they are brilliant this will sum it up I emailed Stuart and said what are the chances of getting young marble giants back together and I persuade Keris to put them on the main stage and Stuart's email came back and he said no other words just this young marble giants 100% no <laughs> me 100% yes <laughs> And I thought, what a brilliant answer. Yeah. <laughs> Clear and to the point. I honestly, I went back to Keris and said, right, we're not going to get Young Marble Giants, but we've got Stuart Moxham. And do you know what? He was brilliant. He was funny. And he did a set of songs from his career. So it was like a, an evening with Stuart Moxham. And he only did one Young Marble Giants song. So he was definitely not compromising because they'd all come the same because he was in Young Marble Giants. Mm. But he did stuff from his whole career. He was funny. He was brilliant, and he was dressed in a red shirt with yellow braces and two biros in his top pocket. <laughs> and Spike, who was in some of these early Cardiff bands um, with Alison and things, they were in a band called Weekend. Spike is a legend of the Cardiff independent scene. He ran said Block Records, which first recorded Young Marble Giants. And there was a little conversation on Facebook between Spike and Stuart, and I was obviously copied in this, and Stuart was, you did notice the two biros in the top <laughs> left-hand pocket. And it's this, atten this attention to detail and the yellow braces in the red shirt that makes the difference, the absolute difference. If you go to see Patti Smith or Debbie Harry or The Clash, they understand that. Stuart understands that. I would say he's a hero. But I've never felt so comfortable with anyone. So he's not a hero. He's a fellow traveller. Yeah. In the same way, I have that relationship with Jamie Reed from the Pistols. You know, they change your life and then you become mates. Yeah. It's quite funny. But Stuart turned around to me and goes, I'll produce your next record. <laughs> there was no mention of a new record. Yeah. I hadn't mentioned <laughs> new record. But that was his, you know, opening and parting shot. I'm producing your next record race no debate how brilliant is that you know so you're sitting there as a 17 18 year old in Tlamacarino and listening to this record and the person who changes your life just says I'll produce your next record <laughs> that's not bad that's <laughs> um, you were saying about um, the huge effect that never mind the bollocks had on you and like you know that's like a Molotov cocktail of energy you know straight from the opening track and this in a different way you know um, had the same effect but to me, it's sort of equally ballsy in terms of like the syncopation and the sound being as important as the silence on the album. I mean, that's a really ballsy move. Oh, yeah. Like, take some bravery. Yeah. No, you're right. You know, you don't have to shout to make the point. That That's the point of this, isn't it? And I think what happens in post-punk, that period, 79, 80 especially, God, people produce some really innovative records. Um, if you look at 
Essential Logic is a, a, an underrated band. They produced funky, jazzy pop songs that could easily be chart hits, but they were just obscured on Rough Trade. And you get the whole freedom with the pop group and the slits, and that's where people like Nera Cherry came, really, from that collective of people in Bristol. Um, Jeb Roy Nichols, who's somebody I've managed and worked with and released records with, still fellow travellers with Jeb. A lot of those people came through exactly that same revolving door which would have been Adrian Sherwood, The Slits, all those people living in the same squat. An incredibly innovative time. And they really did. They moved punk on when, bless them, you know, I still have a bit of time for Sham 69 and UK Subs and 999 and all. I, you know, I did like those bands. But they stayed as League Division 2 yeah. punk bands. Some of the songs were good and some of the gigs. UK Subs were always good live. But, you know, deep down you knew that the Slits and Young Marble Giants and All Pairs and um, Delta Five and all these bands, John Langford's another example, those people took it forward musically. And I think today, all those people are good candidates to produce, you know, somebody's next record. They're people with experience who could contribute. Yeah. You mentioned the the, the minimalism in, in the sound. And, and to be honest, it's not a, a record I'd listened to much in the past, obviously, I knew the being a big Nirvana fan, the the Kirk Cobain was was influenced by them, so I was expecting something completely different, yeah. and and it was that thing that you know, that struck me in terms of like what you said that sort of like punk uh, or post punk time, and this was definitely counter to what was going on in terms of the the Phil Spector wall of sound and the layers and those sort of things. But yeah, you, you also touched upon about like the drum machine, and when I played live, it was it wasn't a drum machine as we know it now; it was a tape of of yeah. a drum machine that they, they made. What was that like when you saw them live? Well, I went up to a festival called Futurama, which was in Queen's Hall, Leeds. And on one day, I would have seen Hazel O'Connor, Soft Cell, Young Marble Giants, Echo and the Bunnymen, Susie and the Banshees. What a lineup. In one day. Pre-fame, most of them. I remember seeing Mark Almond on stage and I couldn't work out if he was male or female. <laughs> he was so yeah, yeah. tiny and pretty and makeup. I remember thinking, hmm, not that it matters, it wasn't a concern at all, but you couldn't figure him out. But it was a weekend. It was an event, Futurama. I think Public Image did the first one in 79. I think I went to the one in 79 or 80. I can't remember the exact date. It might well have been 1980 that I did. U2 played. No one knew who they were. And I can still remember Bono throwing mics up in the air and letting them drop on the stage. And the PA guy ran after him. He was going to belt him one. <laughs> And this was pre, pre, obviously pre-fame U2. They were about in the middle of the lineup, really. But I still remember him. He threw the mic up. It hit the stage. PA guy had a wobble. And Bono ran behind the drums so he didn't get clobbered. And the Banshees headlined. But one of the main reasons for me being there was to see Young Marble Giants. Yeah. And it was just, you know, a spiritual <laughs> event. And they had an um, incredibly innovative um, bass style. I think you were saying that um, Stuart Moxon played the, is it high notes or no, low notes? And then the guitarist played the, talk me through it. Yeah, there's a funny thing, because it's hard to work out, because they recorded in Voile Studios, which was a 24-track. You know, you've got the freedom there to multi-track instruments. You play it once, and then you do another track, play again. But I was watching a live video of them today that, is up on YouTube of them playing in a place called the Western Front. I'm not sure where that was. And you realise that Phil Moxham on bass is playing a lot of the top lines. Yeah. So the riffs that you would have maybe overdubbed on a guitar, 
on the bass because Stewart is playing these little chucky riffs. So in a studio, you just multi-layer these things. So actually the way they do it live, I hadn't realised very, very clever arrangements going on there to, to make that work. And then the drum machines or you know, tapes, so minimal, but they just about allow you the groove. So there is a groove to them. And they're almost like there's an element of jazz going on there. But there's something about the way Stuart arranges and plays the guitar. Because when, when I saw him live at The Good Life, you could identify Young Marble Giants in a lot of things. So you saw his stamp. All I can say is perfection on record and the affinity with Cardiff, the affinity with Voile, the emotional affinity thing. Had that record come out of Seattle, I probably wouldn't have been bothered. Yeah. Probably. But the the parts together, the Welsh connection and this genius record, it does, you know, I've got to put that higher up on the list than however good Essential Logic were, Young Mabble Giants are always going to have a bigger chunk of my heart, if you like. How sort of successful was it um, overseas, though? I mean, obviously, Kurt Cobain picked up on it, and um, Courtney Love did the cover of um, Credit as well. So, yeah, how, how much did it transcend the sort of UK in terms of popularity? Was it not Good question. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I uh, doubt. You know, with these things... I was just interested in, uh, to see how, how would have Kurt um, discovered uh, it. Yeah, well, some of these people in bands are train spotters. We used to get letters off Jello Biafra, Dead Kennedys, for example, in Andrew days. He would collect all the records, yeah. so he'd want the new Duplucky one, he'd want the new Andrew one. So these people, despite being well-known pop stars, if you like, or punk stars, I'm sure Kurt was similar that they were fans, so they would have followed Rough Trade. But the masses in America wouldn't have understood you yeah. know they were still into rush weren't they or whatever they were into <laughs> I, I don't know the answer but a lot of this stuff it was mainly a city thing in britain you know they're going to be better understood in edinburgh glasgow birmingham bristol aren't they london i don't think young marble giants would have had a north welsh following in north wales except for people like us who heard them on peel yeah so i don't know but i i, I suspect that today these things if they were cult records at one time they're back now on the radar aren't they you can you can yeah. listen to young marble giants on spotify and rediscover they were pioneers. I think one of the interesting conversations I've had with Stewart is I don't think they identified in any way with Wales at that time. It was not, not even a thing. Yeah. So they were in a different time frame from all of us. I think like at the time as well in Cardiff when they sort of formed this as the originals band, obviously they were a covers band beforehand, that it was very much a rock scene going on there. So there wasn't anything for them to, or there wasn't an audience for them at the time and they didn't really travel around. And there was a, a sort of underground scene um, based at the Grassroots yeah. Coffee Shop in Cardiff. And there was a band that they were taken under their wing um, in, in Reptile Ranch. That's and it. they sort yeah. of like knew, I guess, the broader scene that they were interested in. I guess it's the same sort of principles as you talked about in terms of like the can-do attitude and do it yourself, that they needed somebody, they needed someone to help them, shepherd them, guide them. There's a, a lost or a hidden history there, said Block Records, Reptile Ranch, all these characters. There was a lot of innovation happening in Cardiff and it's Spike. I think it's Spike Williams, isn't he? Zed Block Records. He is an unsung hero and it's a story that's been lost where in that post-industrial landscape of Cardiff, before Cardiff has the confidence of being the European sort of vibe it has now, it was a different place, very different place. And they came out of that in the same way as the Manchester bands dealt a similar
the landscapes, you know, it's boarded up warehouses and things and dock warehouses, isn't yeah. it? Really interesting. There's an album that Spike put out called Is the War Over? And it's a compilation of Cardiff bands. And it's got the first recordings of Young Marble Giants. Some of the songs have been re recorded on the album. We played that recently on the radio and um, invited Cardiff people to select tracks from that album, which were your favourite tracks. And you always find this, that there are pioneers out there and a lot of them get lost. So, you know, when you look at someone like myself, I've been able to have a career out of it. Sometimes you say, all oh, right, you haven't been given enough recognition, but I've actually managed to have a career. But I'm painfully aware of other people who inspired me, who had sort all, you know, they've just gone to a job or given up or something. And you always say the same thing. Malcolm Neon is a good point with his electronic music. Malcolm's never had any success at all. Not real recognition. Somebody's put out an album of his works recently on vinyl. I think it was a German label. So there's that level. But Joe Bloggs on the street still wouldn't know the history of the importance. So there's a lot of that. And I think in Wales, because it's not that big a place, it is actually something that's really interesting and possible now if you're doing podcasts or people, are, you know, there's a site on YouTube called Far Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kid is putting out obscure videos and we use Far Out now because we yeah, go, oh, crazy, what happened yeah. to that band? And you can find them. <laughs> but he wasn't even born when these bands existed. But it's almost like a resource. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it slowly but surely, I guess, a lot of this history will resurface and it's dead interesting. You talk about, is the war over? That was a compilation of, as you say, about that scene in Cardiff and there's definite parallels to what you were doing with Kamotowahu and Reptile Raj took that to London and Jeff Travis sort of signed Young Marble Giants on the, the basis of those two songs on, on, on that record. How important do you think Jeff Travis and Rough Trade were to Young Marble Giants, particularly in the freedom to allow them to record in the way that they did very quickly over five days in Foil Studios, um, that minimalist approach to the music that we, we said and, and sort of antithetic to what was going on at the time. There probably wasn't many labels around who would, who would give them that licence. This one's interesting, very, very interesting. Rough Trade as a label, certainly in the early days, they had stiff little fingers and they inflammable, inflammable material and stuff. So as a platform for Young Marble Giants, Central Logic were on the same label. Later on, of course, you have Catatonia on Blanco y Negro, which is Jeff yeah. Travis. So you could argue that Travis has given these people a platform. How much understanding he has of where they come from You'd have to ask the bands. I wouldn't... Yeah, I have a different view of the London heads. They just do what they think is cool. They don't have a cultural affinity. That's my view. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually never met Jeff Travis, ever, on all our travels. But I can't say sitting here now that I've got any affinity with people like that. I don't yeah. feel any affinity with London labels because we have a cultural thing that comes with us. There's, there's a little bit more. It's just not some cool band and they've got that in Liverpool and they've got that in Manchester and they've got that in Birmingham you can feel it and they don't have that in London their experience is superficial they love it that you know somebody sings in Welsh or Cornish they haven't got a bloody clue why and they don't want to have a clue yeah so I, I'm even today at the age of 57 I still go with Tony Wilson's view with the London lots you know <laughs> <laughs> one thing I think that really adds to their sort of awe and the magic about them is the fact that they release so little 
Uh, and it becomes, do you think it becomes more iconic then? The fact that there's just, you know, it is just the one album and a few other tracks? Oh, definitely. Look at Funny Google, that's one single. Yeah. And a Swansea Sound session that we re released. So sometimes you just create a great record and then completely disappear. There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I was interested at one point, it's not happened, but I wanted to write a book about all the unsuccessful Welsh bands so that the Mannics wouldn't be mentioned or the Furries and that you'd only write about these people who made one great record and then disappeared. And I wanted to call it an alternative history of Welsh music or something like that. And I thought Young Marble Giants might well have qualified for the book. These people who made great art and then disappeared. In a way... It comes back to that idea of pioneers. That record by Llygod Fernig, they came from Llanelli in 1979, is one of the dirtiest, rough-sounding records of all time. And it sums up tin plate industry gone, wastelands, abandoned buildings. That is the soundtrack. And they sing, you know, that the teacher says nothing to me. What are you going to do? There's no NCB. The only future for me is life on the dole. Very, very cliched. But if you lived in Llanelli in 1979 and the tin plate industry's gone, that's your reality in that school. But I think for them, that record is so... The Welsh word is better, really. It's amrud. Amrud. It's rough. Rough doesn't do it justice. Amrud does. It sounds like they're stuck a microphone in the bloody tin uh, tin plate shed in the waste and scratched the mic on the floor said that's the guitar track <laughs> it captures it there's a side where that is really interesting mm. if not more interesting than success you know malcolm mcladden's line was i'm a successful failure <laughs> and there's a lot to be said about that you know i couldn't write a book about the manics bless them or the furries much as i love them i'm not interested enough to write a book about it but said block records in Cardiff that <laughs> yeah. have kind of disappeared. That yeah. would get me interested. He's saying, ooh, what's the story there? And no one's ever heard of them. Brilliant. We go for the outcasts, the misunderstood more than the mainstream. Yeah, always. and talk, talking of something that's a bit unfamiliar is, um, isn't the album, the band, sort of um, inspired sort of by Greek history and folklore? Is it the Koro, Koro was it, or something like that? I, I guess the, the name Young Marble Giants yeah. was sort of taken from uh, a book on, on sculpture. Yeah. It's classical Greek artwork in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you, yeah. you get that statuesque, yeah. androgynous... You see, these are head of Nick, aren't they? In the Mannix, they're androgynous. They can't really <laughs> figure out who's who. Have they got eyeliner? They look suspiciously like eyeliner. One of the interesting things with this record, I thought about this when you guys got in touch. I have no idea what they're singing about most of the time. You look at the titles. That's part of the romance as well, I suppose. Chocky Loney's yeah. one, isn't it? Well, it's a jukebox, a bit of a hit. Salad Days. You know, what the hell's that about? Salad <laughs> Days. But it didn't matter. You entered a world with this album listening to it you entered another world god knows what we were dreaming as a you know midwalian youth i have no idea what those dreams were but i was transported on this magic carpet somewhere by young marble giants and talking of being sort of transported to some you know sort of magical place um, i noticed um, the tweet that you put out on the weekend after the adwife gig and you said uh, you had been as excited about a band um, since the Young Marple Giants as yeah. Adwith now. What, uh, how do you sort of compare the two? Like, what, what sort of... Because you see absolute certainty artistically in what they do. You know that they know what they're doing. You know that they're on it. 
That's what I see in them. I just think that my in- instant response to Adwaith was it was so funky what they did. It was just bliss. It was like a musical hit of sugar or something. It was incredible what they did, almost seamless. Adwaith are going to be doing their next album the second album, they will produce something better than the first album, which is an incredible record. Yeah, it's because it's a big you ask know. as well, that is, yeah. So you just think, just give them the keys to the studio. Yeah. Let them go. And I think in many ways, Young Marble Giants with Colossal Youth, for me as a listener and as a fan, they did produce a perfect record. Big Leaves have done it with Pusingalo. Yeah. That is a perfect record. There's nothing wrong with that record. It speaks for itself without us blabbering on about it. Yeah. That's the key to it. You put it on. Obviously, Colossal Youth is celebrating its 40th anniversary in February 2020. How does it still stand up uh, four decades later? Could have been recorded yesterday. Couldn't it? You listen to that now. It's completely sharp. It's the one thing I like about Paul Weller. There's a lot of stuff about Weller I'm not keen on, but he's always sharp. And that's the thing. Does it cut? Does it get through that fog? Does it get through the mist? Does it get through the bloody smog stuff? cuts through like a knife it does this does it sounds fresh it sounds absolutely warm and it is it's not digital thank god you know it's done by little things making squeaks and bleeps and electrical interference there gives it a warmth but it it it, it's sharp that record has no fat on it it cuts through at all points i mean i think it's it's genius stunning it's like a work of art something that hopefully well, it's quite evident that Adwife don't have in common with Young Marble Giants is that sort of tension in the band and I think that probably contributed to the, to the band's downfall obviously yeah Philip and, and Alison were together as boyfriend and girlfriend and Philip introduced Alison to the covers band that they were in and Stuart wanted an avenue for his his original compositions and Philip said well only if Alison could sing and there's quite a few sort of examples of that tension that drives a band on sometimes to, you know, blow up and, and then reform and start again, like the Libertines with Carl and Pete, Liam and Noel, the sibling rivalry. How important or unimportant do you think that factor was with this band? I think with all bands, generally speaking, tension is key. It is important. You've got to have an edge. And you've got to have soul. It's got to come from within. You've got to have total belief, not a stubborn belief, not a stupid belief. You've got to have that, I call it soul. If you listen to Nina Simone, that's your benchmark, or Patti Smith, take either or, and you you believe every single word. So you've got to have that. Adwaith have that. Young Marble Giants have that. But the tension, sometimes it's the price you pay in order to create the art. You know, being happy, being complacent, being satisfied, being nice. That's the worst word, isn't it? It's just nice. You don't want nice. You want something that engages with you on an emotional level. Another artist who does this is a good example, but it's a completely different thing, is Tlai Wen. And she's produced this album recently, Gunglan, Babel Bitter. And I, I never remember the order, but that is an emotional roller coaster of a record. And I've seen Tlai Wen live a few times this year. People always do the same thing at the end of the show. They go, Ooh, did you enjoy yourself? Did you enjoy Tlai Wen? And I always say the same thing. You don't enjoy Tlai Wen. It's an emotional experience. I cry with some of her songs. There's sadness, there's rawness, there's a voice screaming to get out there. You don't go to listen to Tlai Wen. I mean, that was good fun, wasn't it? You know, you're not going to see Bananarama when you see Tlai Wen. It's a different kind of art, but bloody hell that is art. You know, that soul-bearing art that's emotionally raw. 
but it comes through. It's the soul comes through. It's an incredible thing. That's the difference between an artist and somebody just fiddling around with a guitar. That total difference. And Lee Wen, and I'd say this genuinely, Lee Wen is up there with Nina Simone. If Nina Simone was touring and she comes to Bloody Bangor, which is highly unlikely, Lee Wen would be a support and there would be no problem with that. You know, that would work. It's soul. And they all have it. Strummer had it. If you look at him, you know, for all his sins, the soul there, you know that. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. Reese, thank you ever so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, it's been fantastic talking through uh, your favourite album and, and thanks, I guess, for introducing it to me in, in some respects because I probably I hadn't listened to it much before. So, um, yeah, it's been fascinating. Pleasure. To close this week, we got a great new single from Bandicoot, uh, Swansea Indie Group. Uh, it only came out a few weeks ago, actually, at the start of February. Um, it's a uh, song inspired by the great American philosopher and poet Allen Ginsberg and Super Fairy Animals. And it's written after a night out watching um, Cardiff Band Keys in Swansea. So yeah, this is uh, Bandicoot and the song is called Oh Nevoid Oh Heavens. Oh, 